0: Listening to the Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at South Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. Amen. Good morning, Venue. Man, i I have missed you guys. Seriously, it's so good to get to be with you guys. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the Book of Psalms, chapter fifty one. Psalms. 51, and we we say often on here that clarity is a leader's best friend, and so want to let you guys know. uh, Again, first of all, if you're like, "Where you been, bro?" I've been in the worship center, uh, filling in for Pastor David while he's been on sabbatical, and been a privilege to do that. But been missing you guys for sure. And then uh, probably assuming most of y'all by now know that uh, next Sunday is it's, it's bittersweet. It'll be our next my next. Sorry, I'll get it straight in a second. Next Sunday is my last Sunday on staff because I'm going to pastor a church up in Nashville, Tennessee, but so grateful to be with you guys today and next Sunday. And speaking of clarity being a leader's best friend, some of y'all understandably have been asking, hey, so what's the plan for the venue moving forward? Um, Our executive staff is meeting this Tuesday to kind of hopefully... put some nice uh, ties on that conversation and kind of finish up the plans for what we're doing with the venue. And so I'll uh, be telling you more about that next Sunday, but we've been waiting for Pastor David to get back. And so they're gonna meet this week. Wish I could tell you more right now, but that's what I'll tell you for now is that you, would ha- ha- you will have an answer very, very soon and uh, looking forward to being able to share that with you. Um, as I thought about, man, I got two Sundays, kind of what we'll call like a standalone two Sundays where we're not really part of a series I thought about what I want to share with you guys, and largely in part to my own spiritual journey, I want to share this passage with you. And now, I've I've actually preached Psalm 51 in the venue before, Austin just a few weeks ago, which by the way, you know, Austin and Ashley had their baby, let's go, super awesome, little Jane, and uh, man, they'll they'll be here soon uh, back in church, but man, excited for them. Um, He did a great job in this passage a few weeks ago. But when when Austin preached it, when I've done it before, we looked at really the primary issue of this text. And that is it's dealing with repentance. If you remember the context, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and then he had her husband Uriah killed. And after that, the prophet Nathan comes to David and confronts him. And David wrote Psalm 51 as really a response to the recognition of his sin. So as a primary issue, Psalm 51 teaches us what repentance looks like. It teaches us the importance of of repentance and and how um, devastating sin is to our lives. So there's objective guilt, meaning apart from Christ, all of us are guilty in the eyes of God. We've, as Romans 3.23 says, we've all sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. So objectively, we're all guilty. But even beyond that, subjectively, we all experience guilt. Which by the way, if you don't ever feel guilt when you do something wrong, you might should get that checked out, right? Like that's, that's not good. But subjectively, we feel that, that guilt, that remorse, that shame. And we need that. This passage is important for that. But there's a secondary issue in this text that I wanna lean into today. And that is the issue of chronic guilt. Chronic guilt. So Chronic means it's, it's over and over, it's consistent, it's repetitive, there's a pattern. And the guilt just being that subjective sense of like, oh man, I feel bad, I can't believe I did that. I feel, I feel distant from God, I feel like he's mad at me, I feel like I need to, to do something right to get back in his good favor. Subjective guilt, chronic guilt. Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor and author. Uh, He listed out a lot of different reasons in one of his books uh, why we may feel guilty, and like, and he points out like a lot of them are so silly, and some of them like they they have a good heart behind it, but we we then take things too far. So, for example, he says maybe we feel guilty because we could pray more. A question: Could we all pray more? Absolutely. So. if you just are obsessed with, I, I could pray more, you're going to feel guilty all the time. Uh, he says, we feel guilty because we aren't bold enough in evangelism, or we like sports too much. It was a rough night last night, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> we, watch, we feel guilty because we watch movies and television too often, or we feel guilty because our quiet times are too short or too sporadic, or we don't give enough, or we bought a new couch, <laughs> We feel guilty because we don't read to our kids enough, or because our kids eat Cheetos and French fries. <laughs> we feel guilty because we don't recycle enough. I don't know many Leviticites that feel that, <laughs> but we feel guilty because we need to lose 20 pounds, or we could use our time better, or because we could live someplace harder, or uh, live in uh, someplace smaller. We have all these different reasons that we feel guilty. Now, I want to recognize some of you, as I'm even saying this, you're like, yeah, that's not me, bro. Like, I, I don't struggle with that. Well, if that's, a, if that's not you, it's okay. Thanks for your honesty. But I promise you, someone you know, someone you love struggles with chronic guilt. I'm sure of it. You know the name Martin Luther, famous reformer? He actually struggled with chronic guilt really bad, particularly before he was... A Christian, even after a Christian, he still struggled. But listen to what Eric Metaxas, he wrote a biography on Martin Luther. Eric Metaxas, great author. You should check out some of his stuff. But listen to what he says about Martin Luther. He says, Luther seemed some kind of unprecedented moral madman on a never-ending treadmill of confession. Instead of looking upward and outward toward the God who loved him, he zealously and furiously fixated on himself and his own troubling thoughts. It was as if he was chasing his own tail, making himself winded and dizzy. And some of you, as I read that, you're like, oh, that's me. Friend, Romans 8.31 says, therefore, which says therefore, he's referring to Romans chapters one through seven, he's been laying out the gospel that we're saved by grace through faith. That's not what we did, but it's all dependent on what Jesus has done for us. The law can save us. Romans 8, one says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christians are not meant to live under chronic guilt. Like that's, if you walk away with nothing else this morning, walk away with that. Christians, those who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ are not meant to live under chronic guilt. My goal this morning, as we, as we walk through this text and really see that there's some promises in this text, while they may be a little secondary, like I said, there's still promises in here. My, my hope and the way we approach it, I'm gonna give you a lot of different scriptures. They won't be on the screen because there's probably too many references to, to keep track on the screen. But my goal is to kind of machine gun away your chronic guilt, <laughs> kind of shock and your chronic guilt away from your heart. Number one, then we'll look at the text. First thing about chronic guilt. Chronic guilt ignores God's character. It ignores God's character. So if you're in Psalm 51, read verses, uh, verse one with me. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. That uh, faithful love there in Hebrew is kesed. So it's referring to God's covenant love. So who God is in covenant with his people, the promise he's made in his relationship with his people, that's what David is referring to. And he's saying, God, be gracious to me according to this covenantal faithful love that you have towards me, towards a, your child. So he's recognizing, God, it's in your character, it's in your DNA to be gracious your people. You have faithful love. God, be gracious to me. Again, according to your abundant compassion. So he's asking for God's grace, not based on, you know what, I've repented just right, or I've turned from this sin just right. He's saying, no, God, I'm calling on, I'm, I'm, I'm claiming and embracing your forgiveness, your grace, not based on what I've done, but on your abundant grace and compassion. That's who you are, God. Exodus 34, 6, Moses wants to, again, Exodus 34, 6, if you're writing it down, Moses wants wants to experience God, and God says, I'm going to pass by you and show you just a little glimpse of my glory, right? He just catches the hem of the robe, just a little bit of his glory, and as God walks by Moses, he describes himself, the first thing out of his mouth, he says, Exodus 34, 6, the Lord, the Lord, what, compassionate and gracious, That's who God is. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29. Matthew 11, 28 through 29, Jesus says, "'Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, "'and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am, what, gentle and humble in heart. That word humble there is the idea of of lowly. What is Jesus saying? No matter who you are, no matter your struggle, no matter how worn down you are, Jesus is accessible. Accessible. Think about that. The God of the universe, Hebrews says that even while Jesus was on the cross, he held the universe together by the power of his word. Think about that. Blood flowing from his hands, his feet, his head, his side, and yet he's holding the universe together. That same God is accessible to you no matter how much of a struggle you are in your sin, no matter how much shame you feel over your life, he welcomes you to come to him because he is gentle and lowly. That is who he is. Think about the fact that this psalm even exists tells us that he is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness. So chronic guilt wants you to spin in this cycle of I'm the most terrible person, God's mad at me, I'm the worst. And, and the fact that this psalm even exists, God's saying, hey, when you struggle, when you sin and you're gonna sin, come to me. There's grace and mercy. Just turn to me. This psalm wouldn't exist if God wasn't a God of grace. Instead, it would say something like, well, better luck next year, you're done. (laughs) No, it's forgiveness. Chronic guilt ignores God's character. Where my wife uh, works at Beat and Bow, they've been doing some uh, focuses on health, put it that way. It's really cool, uh, some initiatives they're doing. And uh, one of our friends was... um, meeting with a nurse, I guess, to talk about her blood work and just how things were looking and just kind of get some perspective on uh, health and how she's doing, which is really cool. And uh, the doctor or the nurse, excuse me, asked her how much water she drinks. And our friend said, well, none really. Oh, wait, you know what? Sometimes when I'm brushing my teeth, a little bit slips down my throat. (laughs) We were at uh, dinner with some friends. Uh, I got permission to to share her name, but y'all know... uh, Toby and Bobby Kite, we were at dinner uh, last Saturday, and I don't know what we were talking about, but reading came up, and Bobby, jokingly but seriously, she said, yeah, sometimes when I feel guilty about not reading enough, I just turn on, I turn on the uh, closed captions, the subtitles while I'm watching TV, and I read those. <laughs> I was like, I don't think that counts, Bobby. <laughs> like, I don't think that counts. Well, why, do I, why do I share those? In both those instances, with with you know getting your water from when you brush your teeth, <laughs> or in reading by just reading the closed captions while you're watching TV, both of those are ignoring like the real purpose and real content of of water and of of reading. Like, good you know, help you out in a science class, kids. Like, your body needs water. <laughs> You have to have water. Like, man shall not live on Dr. Pepper alone, Lauren. Okay, (laughs) just kidding. You. She she got she got Dr. Pepper. That's right. She she holds up her thirty-two ounce Dr. Pepper. That's right. Always got it. Can tell so many stories. I'm gonna try to stay focused. (laughs) You you need water. And actually, when you when you quit ignoring how your body needs water and that's good for you. It's actually, you get to enjoy the benefits of water. Or think about reading. And Bobby, I know she loves to read and she's a reader. But like, uh, if, if you ignore that reading actually is good for you, when you miss out on the blessing and benefit of, of reading. But you also, you'll begin to push it away. And rather than like picking up your Bible or picking up something to read, you're just gonna watch TV. You're, you're missing. Why am I saying all these stories? What's the point? When you ignore who God really is, that his character is gracious and compassionate, you're missing out on all of his blessings and benefits and you're gonna be more inclined to push him away and not want to have as much to do with him if you don't truly understand that he really is a God of grace and mercy. I believe it was Peter that said in the New Testament, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Psalms talk about that a lot too. That, like, Don't ignore how good he really is. No, run to him. The book of Hebrews invi- invites us to come into his presence, not because we've got it all together, no, but because he died for us and because he's a God of grace and compassion, but to come into his presence boldly because of who he is. If you ignore his character and think, he's just a mean God, Uh, he's always mad at me, I'm I'm walking in shame all the time. When you struggle, when you sin again, you're not gonna run to him, you're gonna gonna run from him. guilt ignores God's character. Thomas Goodwin was an English preacher in the 1600s. Listen to what he says about this idea of God's character. He says, that which keeps people off, meaning away from God, is that they know not Christ's mind and heart. The truth is, he is more glad of us than we can be of him. The father of the prodigal was the forwarder of the two to that joyful meeting. Have you a mind, which that was an old school way of saying like, hello, do you see this? He says, he that came down from heaven, as himself says in the text, to die for you, will meet you more than halfway as the prodigal's father is said to do. Oh, therefore, come in unto him. If you knew his heart, you would. When you know God's character, you'll run to him, not from him. Number two, chronic guilt says partial where God says perfect. Chronic guilt says partial where God says perfect. Partial meaning Incomplete, perfect meaning whole, complete. Look at verse two in chapter 51. David prays, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Why does he pray pray that prayer? Because he knows that's how God cleanses you. When he forgives you, when he cleanses you, it's complete. It's not partial or like just a little bit. No, he covers and cleanses everything. Look down at verse seven. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Not maybe, not like maybe you won't miss a spot. No, I will be clean. I will be purified. That sin will be gone. The rest of verse seven, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. It's a fact. Though my sins are like scarlet, they will be whiter than snow. I'll be forgiven, not because I repented just right. No, but because God is a God of forgiveness and grace, and he perfectly cleanses. Look at verse 9. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. David recognized that's how God forgives. That's the extent. That's the quantity and the quality of his forgiveness. It's not just partial. It's all completely washed away through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Verse seven, where he says, purify me with hyssop. So it was a, a, a cleansing ritual where the, the priest would dip the hyssop plant in water, but sometimes even blood and sprinkle it on the worshiper. And this, this cleansing act that it signified cleansing, forgiveness, which we know from the New Testament perspective, this was foreshadowing this was really pointing us to jesus messianic and pointing us to jesus that if we're sprinkled in the blood of christ we are clean our sins though they were like scarlet are now whiter than snow complete forgiveness think about psalm 103 verse 12 he says as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed our transgressions from us by the way, once you start going east, I don't know if I'm going east. No, I'm headed north walking this way, but you get the point. <laughs> once you start going east, you're, you're always going east. East and west will never meet. The point is, your transgressions, your iniquities, your sins are completely forgiven, removed from you. Not partially, but perfectly. Listen to the words the writer in Hebrews I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses um, 11 through 15. He says, every priest stands day after day, ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, he's talking about Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Down in verse 18, he says, now where there is forgiveness of these, forgiveness of your sins, your lawless acts, there is no longer an offering for sin. Jesus doesn't keep coming down every 33 years to die for your sins because the cross one time was enough to perfectly cleanse and forgive you. Don't say partial where God says perfect. Man, I, I'm so grateful for all of these um, like drive-through car washes that we have here. Like so grateful. But most of the time, drive my Jeep through the car wash and when I get out to clean the inside, <sighs> I missed <the> a spot, <laughs> right? You gotta have your rags and you gotta go back and clean where the machines didn't, didn't get your vehicle cleaned that's not how Jesus rolls. <laughs> you never have to look at your life and like wonder, oh man, did Jesus miss this tire over here? Did he miss this back window? No, he perfectly cleanses you. You know what the book of Hebrews a light of Jesus' one-time perfect sacrifice that I talked about in chapter 10? You know what the, the call to response, the application is in the book of Hebrews? To rest. Not like, literally go take a nap, which that's fun too, but that you spiritually quit striving. Oh, God, please, God, I, I gotta earn God. No, rest in the perfect, complete, finished work of Jesus on the cross. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? He said, it is partially done. No, that's heresy. It is finished. So when you're over here, or when I'm over here, oh man, some am the worst. Can we believe I thought that? Can we have I said that? Ugh. And I'm spinning over like my sin. And if I'm in Christ, I'm forgiven and loved and embraced. I'm making light of his perfect sacrifice by acting, by acting like I'm partially forgiven. Chronic guilt. Chronic guilt ignores God's character. Chronic guilt says partial, where God says perfect. Number three, chronic guilt leaves you in brokenness, but God leads you into joy. Chronic guilt leaves you in brokenness, but God leads you into joy. Hear me clear, brokenness over your sin is a good thing. Like I said earlier when we started, like you should it's appropriate, biblically, spiritually, it's appropriate that when you sin, you stumble, you do things that are not pleasing to God, it's appropriate that you feel broken over that, meaning contrite, there's confession, remorse. But if you, if you read the text, like you're not supposed to stay in this constant, I'm the words. I can't believe I did that. No, God wants you to, yes, lead you through brokenness, but then into joy. Look at what he says in the text in verse eight. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. So there was that, that broken spirit. He felt as if oh, my, my bones have been crushed. This has been awful. I can't believe I did this, but God, would you bring joy? Would you bring restoration? Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me. So again, longing for joy and renewal. Look at verse 17. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. So he wants that. He wants your contrite spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart God. So you should have brokenness. But clearly from the example of David, you should move toward through brokenness and back into joy. 1 Peter 1.8, he says, talking about Jesus, though you, you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you have not, do not see him now, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. When you're spinning and guilt and shame and, oh, I'm the worst, you're not living in inex- inexpressible joy. <laughs> right? You, instead, you feel heavy and burdened. and People are like, what's wrong? they like, I don't know. I'm just the worst. No, he wants to lead you through brokenness and into joy. I love what author Eric Raymond says about this idea. He says, guilt is the chauffeur that should drive you to the cross. It's a cool picture. Guilt, when you sin, remorse broken, it's not a bad thing, but it should drive you to the foot of the cross where there's healing, there's forgiveness, there's mercy, there's grace that leads you to joy. But I would say it's chronic guilt is like a crazed Uber driver who just drives you in circles. <laughs> hey, I'm supposed to be going to the cross. Nope, we're just going to drive in circles. You're the worst. You're terrible. How could God love you? No, let that remorse, that brokenness lead you to the foot of the cross where there's joy, there's forgiveness, there's mercy. You know, you can't grow in a relationship when you're stuck in chronic guilt. Like if every time Lauren and I went on a date night, which we should do more of those, but if every time we went on a date night, if we sat down at the table and uh, the whole time I was just like, Whew. I'm I'm so sorry. I was kind of rude last night when the kids woke us up at two in the morning. That happened last night, actually. <laughs> One specific kid, I won't tell you who it was. But with dinner the whole time. I was just like, man, I'm just, whew, I'm just the worst. Like, could, could you forgive me? About five minutes into that dinner date, she's going to go, would you please stop? <laughs> I've forgiven you. I love you. Let's talk about something new. How many of you in your relationship with God? He appreciates that brokenness. He appreciates that repentance. But I wonder if at some point he's like, hey, can, can we talk about something different than how bad you feel? for your sin, can we talk about something different than just like how I think you're a mess? He's like, I know, I'm not surprised you're a mess. I knew that when I died for you, so let's talk about something different. Chronic guilt leaves you in brokenness, but God leads you into joy. Number four, chronic guilt magnifies your sin, not your savior. Chronic guilt magnifies your sin, not your savior. So again, when you're, when you're just spinning in circles, over your guilt, shame, your sin. What you're doing is you're obsessing, you're fixating on your sin and, and not who God is. And again, that, that's not the pattern that David shows us in the text. He's, he's real about his sin. He's not minimizing it. He's not glossing it over. He's not ignoring it. He's honest about his sin. But rather than choosing to magnify his sin, he moves towards magnifying his savior. Look at verses, um, look at verse 10 with me. He says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. So no serious Bible scholar thinks there are these talking about losing your salvation. This is the idea of, God, I wanna be near you. I wanna know your presence. Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then, <clears throat> I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. So notice there's a progression that David is saying he's gonna see in his life. So God, I wanna be near you. I wanna experience your presence. But the goal is I'm eventually gonna go and teach other people about you and your grace and your mercy. Think about the woman at the well. My wife actually pointed this out, uh, I guess a week or two ago when she gave a talk at work, but like, Jesus pointed out her sin. Yeah, you've had five husbands, girl. Oh, good call. <laughs> he pointed out her sin. She acknowledges it, but then she ran back to the town. And what does she tell the people? Not like, oh my gosh, let me tell you about my sin. No, she goes to the town and says, come meet this man. She magnified Jesus. Keep reading in the text in verse, um, verse 14. He says, save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation. So he recognizes this sin, but then he says, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. So God, I'm recognizing my sin. I need your forgiveness, your cleansing, but that's going to lead me to eventually magnifying you through song. Verse 15: Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Again, God, I'm a sinner. I recognize that, but As I've experienced your grace and your mercy, my mouth will declare your praise. Yes, in song, but also in testimony. As I talk to people I engage with at work, at school, with my friends, whoever, I'm gonna have testimony of your goodness, not just of my sin and my shame and my guilt. I'm gonna tell people about how good you are. So yes, your sin is part of your story, but it is not the whole story. When you spin in shame and guilt, chronic guilt cycles, you're magnifying and obsessing over one little page in your story. When Jesus has written your story, he's the author and perfecter of your faith. Jesus is who your story is about, not your sin. Think about Peter. Did Peter ever sin? Yeah. Peter ever uh, have some epic failures? Jesus was on his way to the cross. He had, he had told Peter, hey, you're going to deny me. No, Jesus, I will die for you. Okay. <laughs> Jesus on the way to the cross. Peter denies him, not once, not twice, but three times. No, I don't know him. Jesus dies for him rises again, conquering death, hell, and the grave, making grace and mercy possible, restores Peter, and then Acts 2. When Peter gets up up to preach at Pentecost, he doesn't say, hey guys, for my introduction, I'm gonna take about 30 minutes and just kind of share about my sin and my struggle. You know what he did? He got up and he preached Jesus because sin was part of his story, but Jesus was his story. Think about Paul. Did Paul have any sin struggles in his life? You betcha. And as you read the New Testament, Paul was honest about his, not just like what he used to do in killing Christians and and approving of that. He was honest about the fact that he had a thorn in his flesh, this this struggle that the Lord hadn't taken away. And he was honest. He would even describe himself as the chief of sinners. But if you look at the the number of times Paul talks about his sin and his struggles compared to the, the times he talks about the riches and the glory and grace of Jesus, they're not even comparable. His focus was on who Jesus is, his goodness, his grace, not just woe is me, I'm the worst person. So you know what? Because of God's grace, we want to magnify not our sin, but our Savior, we choose to sing. We choose to worship. We choose to tell other people about Jesus. You know what? Some of you this morning, it's time for you to literally turn the page. Quit obsessing over your sin. Start obsessing over your Savior, Jesus Christ. Number five. Chronic guilt clouds the gospel. Chronic guilt clouds the gospel. And if you're perceptive, you'll realize that really that's what I've been saying the whole time. I've had five points that are all really the same point. <laughs> Chronic guilt clouds the gospel. It's what all this is about. I'm going to read to you real quick from Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 17. He's Riding to the Ephesian church, he's praying for them, and he says, here's my prayer. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. So he's saying, I'm praying that you would be able to get a glimpse of the hope that you have in God and, and the treasure that he sees you as, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power. So there's not a, there's not a measuring stick, there's not a tape measure big enough to recognize his power Available to work in your life through the Holy Spirit. See, we, when you're walking in chronic guilt, you are not aware of any of those things. In in chapter three of Ephesians, he prays this: "I would pray, I'm praying that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love." And to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Again, when you're walking in chronic guilt, you're not aware of any of that. You're just heavily burdened with your own failures. And the prayers of scripture is that you would see God's love for you. And really this passage actually in Psalm 51 tells us or like points us to how it's possible that we could not walk in chronic guilt, but we could walk in grace. Look at verse nine. David prayed, God, turn your face away from my sins and blot out, so I'm like, you would take a pen and blot out words on a page. Blot out all my guilt. Turn your face away. See, so that's, that's the reality. When you feel that like guilt and shame, you, you're like, God, would you look away? But the reality is we, we want to have relationship with God, have intimacy with God. See, the, the picture of face turning away is distant and cold shoulder. And that's, when you walk in guilt and shame, that's how you feel about God. But we know from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5 21, I believe, says that he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what theologians call the great exchange. See, Jesus was made sin. He took on all of my sin, all my shame, all my guilt, all of your sin, shame, and guilt on that cross. And on that cross, as the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. We talked about this a few weeks ago, or a few months ago, propitiation. It was poured out on God, on God the Son, Jesus, instead of you. He turned, the Father turned his face away from Jesus so that he can turn his face toward you. I love what Jerry Bridges says in describing this idea. He says, his wrath was not merely deflected and prevented from reaching us. It was exhausted. Jesus bore the full, unmitigated brunt of it. God's wrath against sin was unleashed in all its fury on his beloved son. He held nothing back. Jesus experienced the full wrath of God so that you could experience the full grace of God, and he doesn't have to turn his face away from you. So when you're spinning, oh, I'm the worst. I can't believe I did that. It's going to take me three months to get back where God likes me again. I think what God wants to do, because Jesus paid the price for your sins, he wants to grab you by the face and say, would you look at me, my child who I love? I love you. So much so that I died for your sins. So quit spinning and look me in the face and hear me say, I love you. Chronic guilt clouds the gospel. See, when you begin to, to grasp the gospel and what Jesus has done for you, it's like the sun breaking through clouds we don't get a ton of rain here, but think about those winter, those gray winter days we get sometimes, especially like a snowmageddon kind of thing where it's just gray for several days in a row. Don't you love it when the sun finally breaks through those clouds and if I can breathe a little bit easier? <laughs> That's my prayer for y'all this morning. Martin Luther, who I've Read about the beginning of the sermon about him chasing his tail like a crazed dog and I feel bad, I'm the worst, I'm a sinner. You know what set began to set him free from that chasing his tail and dizzying himself with I'm the worst, I'm guilty. You know what it was? It was understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't have to do more because Jesus had done it all on the cross. It set him free and set off perhaps the greatest revolution that the world has ever seen, the reformation. The gospel can break through those clouds, those chains of shame and chronic guilt. My prayer is that you would see this morning that God is rich in mercy. That's what Ephesians says, he's rich in mercy. Listen to what Dane Ortlund says about God being rich in mercy. That God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest shame and regret are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. It means the things about you that make you cringe most make him hug hardest. It means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. It means our haunting shame is not a problem for him, but the very thing he loves most to work with It means our sins do not cause his love to take a hit. Our sins cause his love to surge forward all the more. It means that on that day when we stand before him quietly, unhurriedly, we will weep with relief, shocked at how impoverished a view of his mercy, rich heart we had. The call this morning is for you to embrace grace. I remember... first time I really, to use that verbiage again, had the sun kind of break through the clouds of chronic guilt. I was in college, freshman year, and I didn't know the verbiage at the time I was. I was struggling with chronic guilt, kind of spinning and feeling like, how could God love me? And my mentor, I've mentioned him before in here, but Dr. Todd Tanner was preaching at a like the BSM, BSM, and he preached on the the woman caught in adultery. If you remember that story, the Jews catch this woman, which where's the man? That's a good question, but bring her before Jesus, and they're trying to trap Jesus, right? And They they quote the law to him. Hey, what what should we do? Should Should we stone her? You remember Jesus Knelt down, begin to to draw in the sand. Don't you wish you knew what he was drawing in the sand? (laughs) I guess we can ask him when we get to heaven. He said, he who's without the first stone, or sorry, he who's without sin can cast the first stone. What do they do? Do you remember? What did the Jews do? They dropped the stones, Yeah. They didn't didn't stone her. So they all leave. Jesus said, where are your accusers? Where'd they all go? I can't help but think that he said that with a smile. (laughs) Where'd they go? No one's here to condemn you. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice what happens there. Jesus doesn't say, oh, your sin's not that big a deal. It's all good. No, go and sin no more. It is a big deal. He said, "I, I don't condemn you. Remember, towards the end of that message, Dr. Tanner, he had placed rocks under all of our chairs. If I was cool, I would have done that for you this morning, but I'm not that cool. He said, hey, grab that rock underneath your chair. So we all reached down and grabbed that rock. And first, he talked about not casting stones at other people, which was really good and necessary. But then he said, some of y'all are really hard on yourselves, he said, if Jesus doesn't condemn you, why are you condemning yourself? If Jesus is not throwing rocks at you, maybe you should stop throwing rocks at yourself. And then he allowed us, this is where my brain's a little fuzzy, but it may have been both, but I think he either had us take the, those rocks and throw them in a trash can, or he may have had a cross and we put them at the foot of the cross, or maybe I'm thinking of youth camp, I don't know. But <laughs> The picture was clear of like, hey, Because of Jesus, I don't have to carry this guilt and shame. In my prayer this morning, so you would walk free from chronic guilt. Walk in the beauty and the power and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. Embrace grace. I'm gonna ask our worship team to come on up this morning. And as we respond, I really think three things come to mind. Man, if that's you this morning... You recognize, man, that he's been talking to me. There'll be some, some ministers down front here in a second. They would love to pray with you. They would love to encourage you. Maybe you just maybe you just want to sit in your chairs, we sing, or stand, and just let God's grace and compassion wash over you. Maybe let the, the gospel break through those clouds of shame and guilt. Maybe that's not you, but you know a friend, you know a loved one who, man, they struggle with this. I would ask you while we're singing this song to just pray for them. Maybe you want to come down to the altar. Maybe you want to come and grab one of the ministers here in a second and say, hey, I have this friend. You don't have to share their name. It's up to you. But like, hey, I want to pray for them that God would set them free. They begin to walk in the hope of the gospel, walk into joy and not just be stuck in brokenness and in guilt. I'd love to pray for that. But then some of you, you, you don't know the grace of Jesus because you've not trusted him. You've been trying to do this yourself. You've been on this treadmill, as Eric Metaxas described. You've been on this treadmill of, I can impress God. And the reality is, you're never going to get there. That's why Jesus came to die for you, to pay the price for your sins, to offer forgiveness and grace and mercy and purpose and hope and new life in him. Feel simply, I did the word repentance literally means to have a change of mind. So you're changing your mind from like, I can do this, I got this, or changing your mind from God's not real to, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe who you say you are and what you did for me. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to quit trusting in my works or my righteousness. It's in Christ alone that I have forgiveness. So Jesus, I'm coming to you. And the Bible says that when you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Not maybe, not if God's in a good mood. No, you will be saved. So man, if that's you, man, call the name of the Lord this morning. If you want, there'll be some ministers down front again to, just talk with you about what it means to trust Jesus if you're still kind of confused on that. And we'd love to pray with you and talk. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church.